Well, good morning. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for this day, this time that we can come together to worship and fellowship with, with you and with each other. We pray as we continue this worship service, as we open your word and begin to look at the wonderful mysteries and wisdom that you have given us, we pray that you will help us to understand, help us to uh, receive things that we can apply to our lives to help us to be men and women uh, of God that you want us to be. We desire that in our hearts, Father. We, we ask that you'll continue your work of sanctification in our lives and, and uh, just do whatever it takes, Father, to help us to uh, endure this uh, spiritual journey that we are on until you take us home. In Jesus' name. So I'm concluding the series on Proverbs this morning that we have been preaching on since early January. Uh, The title of the series has been uh, Practicing Proverbs in Ordinary Life. And our intention with the series was to try to help us to see some of the truths of Proverbs and how they relate to us every day and how to apply them into our lives every day. Proverbs is is rich with wonders from God. Uh, All the books have been given to us by him, but through the Holy Spirit, through the men that he used to write the various books. And even books like Proverbs is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us for our growth and our blessing and our understanding and to help us to see more and more about what God is like and how do we live to please him. Of course, now as New Testament Christians, we have more than just the book of Proverbs or the Old Testament, which was the, the book and the, the, the section of scriptures that was available to the uh, people all the way up until the new letters were written for the New Testament. And all of the scriptures now that we have, which we have in our Bibles that we all bring, hopefully, to church on Sundays and read throughout the week, should be pursued in our lives and studied and obeyed. That's what we were given them for. We've been given God's Word, which teaches us of God's redemption of sinners in Christ. We would, we would not understand the process. We would not understand what happened if we didn't have scriptures to be able to, to give us that knowledge and understanding and what the, the plan of God is for us. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, Without the scriptures, our imagined wisdom runs to foolishness. With the scriptures... And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are able to learn who God is, what He has done for us, and how we can respond to Him and live our lives in fellowship with Him. So the Scriptures are very important to us, especially as Christians. It is very important to us. 
Isn't this what Solomon stated to his son in the first chapter of Proverbs? There he explains his purpose for writing this book. He said, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equality, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a, and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. A significant theme of the book of Proverbs, if you go through it, and as we've pointed out, I think, several times through this series, and especially in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, where it's introduced, is the reverence for God. The fear of the Lord is the way that it's given to us. But that's what it means. It's reverence. The fear of the Lord is not to indicate that someone is so terrified of God that they cannot move or even think, which is sometimes what we may think. You're frozen in position. You can't think. You can't move. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. In fact, to have a fear of the Lord is to have a reverential awe and an admiring submission of fear of Him. So much different than what we're thinking sometimes. The MacArthur Study Bible says that the fear of the Lord is a state of mind in which one's own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's. We take what He has onto us and get rid of ours is the intent. Of course, it's impossible to do completely in this life, but that's the goal. And one day that will happen. According to Solomon, this is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge is good. But there's a vast difference between knowledge, which is having the facts, and wisdom, which is how to apply those facts to life. We may obtain a great deal of knowledge, including in spiritual things. It is possible for people to go to seminary and learn all the various things about scriptures that they have to to teach you and feed you. And graduate a fool. But if we don't have wisdom, our knowledge is useless. There's a lot of people in the world and in church also. I've met some of them. I've seen them that have a mass of knowledge of Scripture. They can quote Scripture better than just about anybody you've run into. They have a biblical verse for every situation that you may bring up. But what they lack many times is wisdom. 
how to apply those facts to life. I was thinking this morning of of an example of this, and recently there was a news article speaking about various schools that are beginning to look at maybe reintroducing the Bible into usually its literature classes uh, and reading various books of the Bible as as a subject or as a, um, uh, you know, for the poems or various things like that. And what a good example that would be because here they're reading the Bible for knowledge. That's what they're after. They're looking at it as just another book. Recognizing that it has wisdom, that it has knowledge, that it has things we can learn from it. But they're not looking at it in the same way that we are able to look at it as Christians and read it. Our goal in life is to learn how to live out what we know and what we learn through Scriptures. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach the reader how to attain wisdom and discipline in a prudent life. How to do what is right, just, and fair. And in other words, to apply divine wisdom to our daily life. Not something that we occasionally or successful at, or once in a while remember that, oop, this week I forgot to do this or that, that Scripture taught me. But to seek to do it in our daily life. It should be it's natural to us as going to work and coming home and doing the various chores that you may have around your home, that you just have a routine. It should be that type of event in your life, that it's something you seek to do. In other words, we should be applying wisdom to daily life and to provide us moral instruction. To the Hebrew mind, wisdom was not knowledge alone, but the skill of living a godly life as God intended man to live. Moses tells the people of Israel something pretty interesting. And after coming out of Egypt and traveling to Canaan, and it's uh, written in Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you turn there for a minute, I'd like to read a section there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Beginning with the fifth verse. Listen to what Moses is telling the people. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering, to take possession possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it 
as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses gave the law of God to the people and commanded them to obey them because doing so would make them be a witness to the nations around them, which is the whole purpose of, 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 of uh, Israel and the nation of Israel at that time, to be the God's chosen people in that region where all the nations, the lost nations, would look at them, not for the fact that they are mighty strong people or that they are different in anything more than God has chosen them and blesses them and fights for them. And our gods don't do that. What is different about this God of Israel? They're to be a witness to the people. He commanded them to obey them because doing so would be a witness to the nations that God was near His people and that His laws were righteous. It would be their wisdom and understanding before the nations. In Proverbs 2, Solomon told his readers something similar. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. From men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inherit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut down or cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out. Our pursuit of wisdom and knowledge that we obtain from reading and studying and obeying the Word of God is used by the Holy Spirit as a testament 
to the world around us too, even as He told the Israelites of old. Which is a way of evangelism by example that we have for the loss that we know. Also, His Word applied by the Holy Spirit and His children. Live, uh, his children's lives helps us to walk on the path of righteousness, which is our goal, our intent. We don't want to walk in sin. We don't want to be a fool. We want to walk in the path of righteousness. It's how we make good decisions and resist the flesh that we continue to struggle with. And it's a, con- a constant battle. Let me ask you, isn't this the same obedience that the Scriptures call us to? Yes. Yes, we are. As New Testament Christians, we are commanded, not asked, not encouraged, not told that if you're able to accomplish this, it'd be nice if you could, but we're commanded. To be faithful to our calling. To obey the word of God. And to be active in being an example to the nations around us. How are you doing in that endeavor? How are you doing in obeying that? How am I doing? It's a constant thing that we should be assessing ourselves. It's how are we doing We are to seek this knowledge and wisdom that Solomon speaks of. Look again in chapter 2, verse 1 there. The first couple words. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments for you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it, As for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Listen carefully to that. And look at verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Where does wisdom come from? Proverbs is full of telling us we should be seeking wisdom. Where does it come from? How do I gain it? What is that wisdom that I'm supposed to get? And I believe here in this section is telling us that it comes in two ways. It's a God-given gift. And it's the result of an energetic search. One study Bible that I read stated that wisdom's, wisdom's starting point is God and His revealed Word, the source of knowledge and understanding. In that sense, wisdom is His gift to us. 
But He gives it only to those who earnestly seek it. God's wisdom is hidden from the lost. There's, there's part of the redemptive message that He uses through the Holy Spirit to reach out to the lost to convert them. But short of conversion... His word is hidden from them. God's wisdom is hidden from the lost, from the rebellious and foolish. Therefore, it takes effort to find it and to use it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians for a minute. Chapter 1. Actually, it will be chapter 2. Here in in chapter 1, though, it, uh, Paul wrote that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, he explains some about what, uh, what he means by God's wisdom being hidden. Looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are, they are spiritually discerned. These secrets of God are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of, of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The secret and hidden wisdom of God is given to His children. Who are they? All those who love and follow Him. And He uses His Holy Spirit to teach them. To take the words of Scripture and be able to bring understanding and help 
an individual to put them into our daily life and to practice them and to understand what it means to love each other or whatever the Scripture may be dealing with. The amazing thing with that is that as life goes on and as you mature, and the longer you are in Christ, you find that even things that you thought were fairly easily understood in the beginning sometimes come out with much deeper meaning later in life. You start understanding something better. You start seeing a little bit more of the picture that you, maybe you didn't see as a, as a new Christian. It's an amazing thing. I would, I would venture to say that the person here who has been the Christian the longest among us would probably tell you that they still have times that things come clearly to them that they hadn't seen before. The Spirit gives spiritual discernment so that we can understand the Scriptures. We're on a lifelong journey in our relationship with Christ, and an important task is to earnestly seek God's wisdom and knowledge. This is a lofty and great thing that we have available to us. But because we still live in this body of flesh, because the world is still fallen and we're influenced by that, we still struggle with sinful ways. I believe that even the desire to gain biblical knowledge and wisdom can be abused if we don't exercise care. Prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to teach us but also to help us to become more and more like Christ in our attitudes. The Scriptures should be changing us. It says that we are tra- or to, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. When we're saved, our thinking is changed. We evaluate things differently than we did as a lost person. And our minds are being renewed day by day by the Holy Spirit. And that continues forever. We are to walk by the Spirit daily so that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh that we constantly are in battle with. Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list of these fleshly desires, but then it states that we are instead to be doing the fruits of the Spirit which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit by seeking to do these things. Our lives should look like those fruits of the Spirit, much more so than the list of the fleshly things that we are fighting against. The fleshly desires. Let's not become conceited or provoking one another or envying one another. The New Testament and the letter of the First Corinthians speaks a lot of this. Unless you think that this can't happen to you, 
early in the church history, Paul was addressing this to the first century Christians. If they can struggle with it, I can guarantee you we will struggle with it. Even while seeking to live a Christ-like life, we can fall into sin. And the sad thing is that Christian brothers and sisters tend to be the focus of a lot of the fallout of those sins. Because we sin against each other. One of the sins we can develop is pride or arrogance. This is when we might think that we're better than the other brother or sister, Christian, that we may know. You may not think that all the time, but occasionally you get to a situation where something happens and you go, Boy, I'm glad I'm not like Brad down the street. He's still struggling with that. I conquered that a long time ago. We do that. You know you do that. Sometimes we do it and we're not even thinking we're doing it. And all of a sudden you're just, what did I just say? That was ridiculous. Another way it might be with the gifts that you have of grace that God has given all of us, exercising these gifts inside the, the, the Christian community, the church community. Again, the Corinthians were struggling with thinking that some gifts were better than others. That because I might have the, the gift of, of uh, prophecy that's better than the gift of service. You know, I have a more important need, more important use than this person. And we do that too. We can get prideful and arrogant. Even while our intent is to try to, to live a life that's pleasing to God. It just slips in there on us. Pride is an offense against God. He hates pride. That's harsh language to use in Scripture, that God hates something. But one of the things he says he hates is pride. It's listed in Proverbs 6 as one of the abominations to God. ESV translated as haughty eyes. It's the same thing, pride. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured that he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In case we think that this is just an Old Testament concept, Jesus in Mark 7 says, What comes out of a person 
is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Pride is a great sin and it's very easily obtained. We already naturally have it in there. We must fight against our fleshly desire to pursue it and to exhibit it. We should instead be walking the path of righteousness with humility. Proverbs 11.2 tells us, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Humility is an important Christian grace. And Scripture speaks a great deal on how we should humbly relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to all those around us. Paul wrote in Romans 12 concerning gifts of grace that we have received and that We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So even with these gifts that God gives us, keep in mind that God gave it to us. It was a gift of grace to be used in the body, and that all of them, if you continue reading that chapter, all of those gifts are important to the healthy well-being of the church. The church of Corinth had divisions based on who you may have been converted under or whose teachings you may have followed. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul admonishes the church there by writing, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So all those gifts were given for the use in the church and keep it healthy. Regardless of how you believe you may have become a Christian. And this is one of those issues that raises its head once in a while. If you think you have something to do with the process or not, it doesn't matter. What matters most is that you believe and that you follow and serve Jesus. But in doing so, do it with humility. Don't do it with harshness or pride or arrogance. 
It angers God when He sees pride and arrogance in His children, and especially in His church. He wants us to learn humility and to live humble lives. I think we miss sometimes what that means. But being a humble person is not being a weakling. Who's our greatest example of humility? Jesus. And from everything I read in this book, he was no weakling. Philippians 2 provides us with a good biblical definition of humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests. doesn't say that you can't look out for your interests. That would be natural to do, but also for the interests of others. Paul's teaching a principle here that's the reverse of what we would naturally learn in life. The Bible teaches that we are to put God first, others second, and then we bring up the third. We come last. This is actually the heart of Christian conduct. When you begin to learn that and, and to put it into practice on a regular basis, your life will change. It will be considerably different than what it may be now. Jesus gave himself for others which is detailed for us a little later in Philippians chapter 2. And he expects us to give ourselves to others too. Boyce wrote a commentary on Philippians, and I'd like to conclude by reading what he wrote on his chapter called How to Live for Others. Well, he says, if you are to live for others, at least three things must happen. First, you must admit that in yourself, you do not care for others. And left to yourself, your choice will always be Satan's choice rather than the choice of Jesus Christ. Your way will be the way of self-aggrandizement and pride. And it will always be harmful to others. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discusses this problem, asking at the end how it is possible to acquire a character that will truly deny itself for others. He calls it humility. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. He adds, 
that it is a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. The second step is to humble oneself before God. Peter writes, All to you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Maybe you will think that such a relationship is odd. You imagine that if you humble yourself before God, admitting his worth, you will have every right to expect that others should be humbled before you. But it does not work this way at all. To see God aright is to admit your total unworthiness. If you will say with Peter, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or with Isaiah who said, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You will have little cause for setting yourself and your own interests above others. The final step involves a daily fellowship with Christ. He is the source of our life. And we must stay close to the source if we are to realize the self-giving life He advocates. Without Him, we can do nothing. On the other hand, Paul says, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. That's in Philippians 4. He shares a story of a Chinese evangelist by the name of Watchman Nee, who once lived in China. And he says that there was a poor rice farmer and his fields lay high on a mountain. And every day this farmer would, and, and the, the farmer is a Christian, and every day the farmer would pump water into the patties of new rice that he was growing. And every morning he returned to find that a neighbor who lived down the hill had opened the dike surrounding the Christian's field to let the water fill his own. For a while, the Christian ignored the injustice, but at last he became desperate. He met and prayed with other Christians and came up with this solution. The next day, the Christian farmer rose early in the morning and first filled the neighbor's fields. And then he attended to his own. Watchman Nee tells how the neighbor subsequently became a Christian. His unbelief overcame by a genuine demonstration of a Christian's humility and Christ-like character. He goes on to say, can you live for others at work or at home with friends, enemies, or relatives? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not only possible It is also an important aspect of your calling. We are to seek the knowledge and wisdom of God, but we must first seek it while practicing humility. I hope that that is something that you will reflect upon 
this week. Let's pray together. Father, we do desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to you. We want to be more and more like Jesus as we mature in this spiritual walk. And we acknowledge that we need your word and the Holy Spirit in us to accomplish it. Help us, O Lord, to be the men and women that you want us to be. Help us to learn to live by putting the needs of others before our own. And we pray this will bring you honor and glory. Amen. The worship team will come forward and pass out the elements. We'll